Testing one, two. Can you guys see me? Okay. Good evening, everyone. I know I feel I feel just the same as you. Three thirty uh, in the morning, my daughter and I um, left home and uh, started a mission to get here in North Carolina. And uh, you know we jumped on one plane to another, and we were just we just couldn't wait to get to the room so that we could just perhaps get some sleep and and, and get some energy. But um, we got here, and uh, you know we only had half an hour to get ready and and get up here and share the word. But praise God that we don't have to depend on our own strength and don't have to depend on our own power, that we can depend on God. And so I know that this is the beginning of the week, and usually at the beginning of the week we have to try and, you know, get the engine started. And so um, I want to thank the praise and worship team because they do, they do a huge job in just trying to set the atmosphere and set the tone uh, for what it's going to be like throughout the rest of the week. And so, I'll, you know, when I spoke in, um, usually when I speak in Africa, they would say, like in Johannesburg, they would say their praise and worship is, is like the rain. You know, they'll, they'll get up and say, you know, let, let's, let's make it rain in this place. You know, and they'll start singing because they believe that when the preaching begins, that's when the plowing begins. And by the time the preacher gets up to plow, the ground is ready, the soil is ready to receive the word. And so I'm thankful and grateful for our praise and worship team. I'm grateful to be here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Pastor Rome Ulia. I've been in the United States now for like going on three years. Going on three years. Um, the bulk of my ministry, uh, 15 years of ministry has been done in Australia. But I was born and raised in New Zealand. I'm going to talk a, a lot more about my story throughout the week. Um, so you get to know me before this camp meeting is over. But um, I'll tell you the truth, you know, I was never a person that was comfortable getting up and speaking, comfortable even standing and sharing anything that's inside of me because, you know, it's kind of hard to, you know, kind of bring out some of the things that are inside of us when you grow up in a home where you're told that you can't you can't speak. And my culture was that my, you know, my relationship with my father was a really difficult one because my father was never interested in anything that I had to say growing up because there's this thing where I grew up uh, in, in the islands where you, you're not ready to speak or, or, or even share your thoughts unless you're, until you become a man, right? And so, you know, it was, I grew up kind of struggling with those sorts of things. And so the fact that I'm actually standing up here today and sharing my faith and also being able to speak and share the word of God is really a testimony of what God can actually do in each and every one of us when we surrender our lives to God. These past two years have been crazy globally. And for me, my family and I, we landed in the United States in February of 2020. We accepted the call here in the States in 2020, February, at the end of February, and we got to meet our church family, our community, on one Sabbath. The following Sabbath, it was lockdown. And on the books, I'm, I'm, I'm ministering at a church of about 800 plus. And we get like, you know, a good fair amount of people at church on a regular Sabbath. And so I just see a sea of people on my first Sabbath. And I say to myself, okay, I'm just going to take some time to kind of get to know everybody try and get to know my new context 
And um, when it went to lockdown and we had the quarantine, everywhere around the world, everybody started asking questions and about ministry. Pastors were calling each other up because there was really no book about how to do ministry through a pandemic. What do we do about pathfinders? What do we do about all these ministries that were connected to us coming together and gathering together? What do we do about our church service? Because, you know, our worship service takes place in a building. And I know that we've been saying this time and time again. Church is not a building. Church is not a building. Church is not a building. And then when the church building was finally taken away, we're like twiddling our thumbs like, what in the world are we going to do now? Right. And then on top of all of that, we were expecting our kids who moved over from Australia. My kids are born and raised in Australia. And they came over and they were all, I mean, like, their anxiety was you know, right through the roof because they didn't know what to expect. And I remember, I remember my teenage daughter, she, she was in the car with me and we were getting some last minute things in Australia before we made the move here to the States. And we had this one-on-one time. It was just me and my daughter. And she goes, she said to me, and this is the first time she actually said something about the ministry because they were raised, they were born and raised in ministry. My kids were born and raised in the ministry. And when I say in the ministry, because we used to we're plant churches, and when we plant churches, our, our first place of meeting is always at home. And so the kids have always had people in our house. Our kids have always had people, you know, over. And so they, were, they, they, they didn't know any other life. And so when, when, when my daughter and I had this one-on-one and, and we made this decision that we were going to go over to the States, I mean, she, she was actually sweating and shaking, even thinking about coming over to the States. And I remember her saying to me, Dad, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to say this. It's like so frustrating. It's like we do everything you want to do. And I remember looking at my daughter and I said, sweetie, for the past 15 years, I've never done one thing I've wanted to do. Everything that I've done has been because God has called us to do things. God has always been at the forefront of this family from the moment you were born. See, it's been 15 years. My daughter is like 15. I'll share more about that. She's a walking reminder of a vow that I made to God that I'll never go back to the life that I lived before. And, it, and, I, and I made a vow. I remember reading scripture where Joshua, when they crossed over the Jordan River, they were asked to take a stone out. And those stones were like memory stones. They were supposed to remind Israel of how God has led them through challenges and through difficulty. And when my daughter was born, she was kind of like my stone for me. And she was like a reminder of a promise or a vow that, that I made to God. And so here's the thing, right? We made the decision. We came over uh, to the States to start a whole new life. And I, I remember just like trying to reflect and process ministry in these last two years. And I know that with my church, and I'm still trying to get, I'm still getting to know my church even now, even after two years going on to three years, I would be like out in like, a supermarket, and, and a person would come up to me, and, you know, because a lot of our ministries was online, they'll come over and they'll say, Pastor Room, it, it, it's, it's good to meet you, and, and, and I, I, I want to introduce myself. You, you don't know me, but I know you. It's an odd way of, like, getting to know your church members. 
You don't know me, but I definitely know you. We've been watching online ministry. And, and I tell you what, one of the most difficult things to do is preaching in front of cameras with zero people in the crowd. And, you know, you have to try and, like, think about where your people are at or whether they understand. I remember reading a book where it says, study the faces of the people when you're speaking. You may have three points written down, and, you, and, and, and depending on the look of the people's faces, you may have to dwell a little longer on one point. And maybe the Holy Spirit is saying, your whole sermon is going to be on that one point. And so, you know, seeing people and interacting with them when you're preaching helps the preacher find out where you're at and whether you understood, you know, it's not hard for us to like give a facial expression that says, what did he just say? And so when you're preaching in front of cameras, it was like, it was like a, a huge struggle. But like these past two years, God has really grown our pastoral team, grown our church through challenges and the difficulties of these last two years to the point where I'm at, I'm at a place right now where I know that everything that we're doing is a confirmation that we are allowing God to have his way because there are so many things in our churches that were like cemented by traditions. And, and for a long time, we argued that a lot of these things were biblical. And, and, and it was hard for us to kind of make some changes so that we could actually be more creative and innovative when it comes to sharing the gospel. These last two years, put our church folk in a place where they, they were like surrendered to the idea that we need everybody to have a conversation about how we're going to move forward as a church. And that means we need our young people back. I mean, churches that neglected their young people in the last two years when they realized that they really need like to go online to do ministry, all of a sudden we're like, where's our young people? I mean, they know exactly how to connect online and do all these things. And so these last two years have been an awakening for me, for many others who are in ministry, discovering where God wants you to be. Where is it that God wants you to be? And you're always asking questions. And there are always questions about God's purpose. What is it, God, that you want from me in this season in this time of my life. And I love it because God is a God when you read scripture, when you, when you read scripture from Genesis to Revelation, you discover that God is a God that likes to speak to us based on what's in our hearts. Don't start mumbling poetic prayers when your heart is in a different place. My brother, when I first met him, first entered into a church and he heard people praying. And there were like some beautiful poetic prayers. And I remember my brother thinking, there is no way in the world I'm ready to pray anytime soon. Not realizing that our poetic prayers, when they're not connected to what's really in our hearts, are really pharisaical prayers. When we learn to come to a place where we begin to talk to God from our heart, because let me tell you something. He knows exactly what's in your heart before you try and pretty it up with your words. He knows exactly what's going on there, and he wants to meet us where we're at, and we'll talk a lot more about that during this week.
And so throughout my whole life, before I even came into the church, before I was even an Adventist, before I was even a Christian, I came to understand the church and Christianity through reading books. I wasn't the guy that walked into church and, oh, this is what church is. I despised church. I remember there was a local church where a lot of people in my community was attending in a neighborhood that I was growing up in. And every night, you know, like early hours of the morning, I'll be going off into work and I'll work in the bars. And at early hours of the morning, I'll be driving back. And if it's a Friday night or if it's a Saturday night, early hours of the morning, you'll see like church people getting ready. And there was just something about like driving past the church where people are just standing there and they're dressed their best ready to go into church that made me feel kind of filthy. But I was just like, like man, I, I could never see myself reading that book. I could never see myself attending church. I could never, I, I just would, wouldn't even think about it. But maybe it goes back even before then where my mother was the only religious person in the family and my father was like an atheist slash agnostic. He was just like, don't even bring up God in front of my dad. And so my mother would try and take us to church and help us connect with God. And I had a really bad experience. And I'll share a lot about that throughout the week. And so here's the thing, right? There's a point in my life where I had hit rock bottom. And I was trying to like escape what, what, what I was going through mentally. I was trying to escape what I was going through emotionally. But there was really no one that I could actually speak to about it to the point where it, it, I got desperate. And I was, I was in need of something that could actually help me process the things that I was going through. Because I started asking questions like, is there even a point to life? And would, it, would, it, would anybody ever care if I was gone tomorrow? Is there a better place beyond the grave? All these questions, it's crazy. That none of these questions would come to, you, to your mind until you hit rock bottom. Because the questions that you ask in the good times, I mean, they're really surface questions like, like, oh, you know, where, where, where should we go and eat? What should we, what, what, what should I wear this weekend? What kind of shoes should I get? And when you hit rock bottom, all of that stuff doesn't matter anymore. You're like, what is life all about? I remember a time when my, when, 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 when I was the only person in my family that had become a Christian, that had become an Adventist, I had this one uncle who used to mock Christianity, then discovered that he had like stomach cancer. And he was a very successful person, had his own business, raised his family outside of Christianity. And I say outside of Christianity because his mama raised him as a Christian, but he walked away from God, rebelled against God. And he knew that I was the only person that had become Christian in the family. And so when he had stomach cancer, he was in a place where he was asking all sorts of questions and he said to his daughter, can you give Rome a call? And I, I just want to catch up with him. And when his daughter gives me a call, my cousin calls me up. And I, I was surprised that he wanted to see me because I, I knew what he was like towards Christians. I came to see him. And the thing was, I almost couldn't recognize him. He had lost so much weight. 
And it was to the point where he had asked the nurses to have all the mirrors removed because he could not look at himself. He knew death was coming. And it wasn't coming like monthly or weekly. He could see it coming in days. And so he asked for these mirrors to be removed. And so when I get there, I sit down and we start having a little small talk, catching up and talking about family, talking about general things until he, he asked me a question. He said to me, Rome, uh, let, me, let me ask you a question. Know that you're a man of God and I respect you. Is there something after life? Is there something more to this life? Because if there isn't, then what was the point of living in the first place? And I remember when he said that, he was like speaking from the depth of his soul. I knew that question was coming up because he was just like, I'm not ready to go. I don't care what I said before. I don't care what I was like before. Like right now, I want to be around to walk my daughter down the aisle one day. I want to to see my grandkids. He was reflecting on all these things. There's another person in scripture that asked the same question. Well, not the same question, but he asked a deep and meaningful question when he had hit rock bottom himself. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 11, but we're also going to come back and land the plane in Matthew chapter 11. But Matthew chapter 11, before I give you that verse, to give give you a bit of background, it's the first year of Jesus' ministry. A lot of people have already heard, a lot of people have already seen and witnessed the miracles of Jesus. People are starting to ask the question, is he really the Messiah, the Son of God? And so Jesus takes the baton from John the Baptist. When John the Baptist gets locked up in prison, the story has it in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to look at verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass, When Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Verse 2 says, and when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. Verse 3 says, and said to him, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? The question that John the Baptist was asking when he was in prison, are you the coming one? Or do we wait for another? Here's the thing about the Jews during this time. They had just come out of exile. It's been 400 years. They're in in a time when the Roman Empire had just transitioned from the Republic to the Roman Empire. They're in a Hellenistic world. And for 400 years, they have been regathering, regrouping, 
This was the regathering of the diaspora that was promised by Isaiah that they would regather one day. And what would follow after this regathering, they knew what would follow after the regathering was that there was going to be a revival that would come after the regathering. And you saw all these movements during that time. They had the Sanhedrin. They had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Essenes, the, the lawyers, which were experts of the law, which is the Torah and the prophets. They went back to studying the Word of God, but it happens all the time, right? You go from one extreme, and then the pendulum swings hard, and it just goes all the way to the other. And they, they knew that the reason that they went into this exile, the Babylonian exile, was because they weren't faithful to the law of God. So here's them coming back to rebuild Jerusalem, and they're coming back strong. They're coming back like, we're going to protect the 12, uh, the, the 10 commandments, sorry. We're going to protect the 10 commandments, and just in case we break another commandment, we're going to add another 613 laws to protect those commandments. And they were, they, they were just as zealous with the traditional laws that they added and they knew that what would come after the regathering, the revival, was the resurfacing of the one, the son of David. And after 400 years of silence, it's that period of history from the book of Malachi. Right when Alexander the Great had died, the, the, the empire is fragmented among his generals. And that time period, 400 years to the coming of Augustus and Tiberius, Jesus is born. And the one who ends the silence of 400 years is this one individual by the name of John the Baptist. He ends the silence by preaching a message of repentance and bringing people to be baptized in repentance. He knew what his life was all about. Like John the Baptist grew up knowing exactly what his life was all about. And here's the reason. I mean, people would come and ask him, John, tell me, who are you? Can you can, can tell us? People are asking, who are you? Because you're baptizing people and you're preaching this message of the coming kingdom. Can you at least inform us as to who you are. And so John the Baptist would often quote from the book of Isaiah. He would quote from the book of Isaiah. And if you look at the book of Isaiah, the first, like the book of Isaiah can be divided, divided into two. When you look at it from, from chapters 1 to 40, it's all this dark stuff about, hey man, this is what's going to happen to you because of your disobedience. War is going to come. God will bring judgment. But then after Isaiah 40, from 40 onwards, it's like all this good stuff. It's, it's, it's the stuff about God is going to do a new thing. God is going to bring about a shoot or a root from David's line. And he'll give them all this hope. It's to the point where biblical scholars believe, hold on, they must be two separate authors. And, and, and so when John the Baptist would quote from Isaiah, he would quote from that part of scripture where there was this Hope, this hope that God was going to restore. 
One of the things you'll discover about the God that we serve from Genesis to Revelation is we serve a God of restoration. God is a God of restoration. This is why when you hear stories about, hey, the Bible's all about whether you're going to hell or whether you're going to heaven, it's, it's like that's not the end of the story. There is a restoration that's going to take place. God is going to restore everything that he had created. God is going to restore, first and foremost, relationships. God is a God of restoration. And so here's, here's John the Baptist who comes onto the scene and he's quoting directly from Isaiah. And I want to read that verse. It's found in Isaiah chapter 40 and it's in verse 3 and I can read it for you. I'm glad that we have these Bible studies that happens the following day because as preachers, we may do a whole lot of study, but all that study has to be condensed. It's like sitting in a class where your professor tells you, here's your topic, but I only want it written in 6,000 words. It's like, dude, depending on the topic, like how are you going to condense that? And they'll say it's a, it's a skill to be able to take a huge topic and be able to condense it. And so I'm glad that we have that one hour where we can unpack a lot of this. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 says this. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. All right. John the Baptist, his purpose, his calling was to prepare the way for the coming of another prophet. Is that what it says? It's to prepare the way for the coming of another king. What the text says, he is going to prepare the way for the coming of God. That's a huge call given to a mere mortal. And yet, from the time John is born, and like Jesus, Gabriel is the one who comes to tell the good news Elizabeth is, 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 is barren, and most faithful women in Scripture is, is barren. And, and, and Gabriel comes six months before Jesus is born and, and tells Elizabeth, you'll have a son. Tells this to both Elizabeth and Zechariah. And the thing is, is that Zechariah didn't believe in the beginning, but finally when the boy is born, they realize that their, that their boy that was born is a boy that was prophesied. And he has a purpose. And so throughout his whole life, he's been raised to know not just who he is, but whose he is. Did you catch what I said? And so he grows up not just knowing who he is, but more importantly, whose he is. And John would be raised in the wilderness of Judea six months older than his cousin, Jesus. And most commentaries agree that both these guys never met each other once. It was in their 30s that they finally crossed paths. It's when they were finally adults that they crossed paths and the story is recorded in John's gospel where John tells the story of John the Baptist baptizing and he looks over and he sees Jesus coming. 
Jesus, John meeting each other for the very first time. Jesus finding John right where he's supposed to be. Preaching what he's supposed to be preaching. Living how he's supposed to be living because his life had been prophesied. But here's the thing. John also knew about the Messiah. So he would recognize who the Messiah was because the same book that he draws his identity from. If, you, if, if you've never read Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, if Isaiah was the only book we had, we'll have everything we need about the gospel. 66 chapters is like 66 books of the Bible. And you got like, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 35, a prophecy about what the Messiah would do. And here's what it says. Isaiah 35, in verse 5, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. It's a, it's a beautiful chapter when you read all of Isaiah chapter 35, right up until Isaiah chapter 40. It has this picture that God is going to, God is going to reveal himself to us for the very first time. His glory is going to be seen. And I want you to understand, it's like God knows it's going to be difficult for us to be able to comprehend God. It's hard for us to try and grasp and understand the person of God. It's what C.S. Lewis said. What C.S. Lewis says, it's like, it's, like, it's like Hamlet trying to understand or even know or comprehend Shakespeare. There's just no way in the world that Hamlet will ever get to know Shakespeare unless, of course, Shakespeare decides to write himself into the story. And the story of Isaiah chapter 35 up to 40 is a story of God writing himself into human history. It's to the point where Isaiah says, we shall see and behold his glory. Come John chapter 1, we beheld his glory. John got to see what all the prophets of the Old Testament long to see the son of god one commentary says that all of the old testament prophets would have gladly have switched places with john the baptist because he got to see him others would say that john the baptist was like this old testament prophet he had the zeal of all the old testament prophets and he's found right there in the new testament and he knows exactly what his purpose in life was. Day and night, he proclaimed, the God, he, he, he proclaimed repentance. He was the one that was preparing the way for the one who would come and open the eyes of the blind. Enable the deaf to hear and the lame to walk. He knew that. Until, of course, got caught up in some politics. And that usually does get you in a lot of bad places. He speaks up about the king and he tells the king, hey, Harold, you got to give your brother's uh, wife back. You can't live like that and be our king. Doesn't really happen because Harold ends up putting John the Baptist into prison. 
He's been in prison from anywhere between six to nine months. And he hears about the works of Jesus because Matthew chapter 11 tells us he never, it says he heard about the works of Jesus. You see, because John never got to see those miracles. He never got to, he never got to, to hear Jesus preach from the front line. Never got to hear it. Because Jesus picks up the ministry of John the Baptist when John's locked up. Right? And so John, by faith, declares that Jesus is the Son of God. He never saw it and then made the proclamation. He made the proclamation based on faith when he had seen Jesus. He says, there's the one. But now he's in prison. He's six to nine months. And for me, that's where he hit rock bottom and he doesn't know, am I going to rot in prison or be executed? The one question that came to John's mind wasn't how long am I going to be in prison? Am I going to be killed? That didn't come to his mind. The question that came to John's mind was, is he the coming one? Or do we wait for another? Is Jesus who he says he is? And I don't know where you are in your walk with God right now. And I don't know if you've ever been in a place like that before. We're right in the middle of your Christian walk. You hit rock bottom or something happens. And you're forced to ask the same question. Is he who he says he is? And other times it's like, have I lost my mind? Is this all for like fun? Like has somebody really, has someone really fooled us? Can I tell you, the only reason I ever picked up the Bible in the first place was because of what that book did to my father. When my father became a Christian, and both my father and I were reconciled, and I said that I'll tell you that later on this week, but my father and I were reconciled, and I remember seeing some things about my dad, and it just blew me out of the water. It was just like, he was a completely different person. And I couldn't put my finger on it. At first, I thought, like, he's just lost his mind. That's all it is. But watching what was coming out of the overflow of his faith. Our family were coming back together again. My children were loved by him. And I just couldn't imagine the picture of seeing my father interact with my kids because he never interacted with me. And when I was seeing the overflow of his faith. I remember he said to me and my wife, you guys should just come check out our church. Just come, come visit. Come check it out. My wife and I went and checked out the church he was seeing that he was attending. When he returned to New Zealand, I remember my wife saying to me, you know what? I think it was cool. You know, it's like, 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 almost like a family thing that one 
that one day in the week where we do something together as a family, that could be like church. Church could be that for us. Now, here's the thing about my wife. My wife doesn't give any care in the world about Christianity. But it was the first time she saw us all in one place, and it's not because I had to do something or she had to do something. We were just there as a family, joining in with other families. And I remember looking at my wife's face, the way she would see my kids up on stage, you know, joining in with the other kids, listening to like kids' story, for example. And she'll just have this big smile on her face. And I'm looking at her going, I know the life that me and her came from. I know the background that me and her came from. But to see her sitting there like she doesn't care about anybody in that room. And she had this big smile on her face just looking at our children at the front. And I was like, we're in big trouble. She likes it. She's enjoying this. And sure enough, when dad leaves, she's like trying to convince me to go to church. And I, I just couldn't see myself giving my life to something if there was no meaning to it. So I remember I told her, you know what? In order for me to attend church, let me just read the book first. Let me just try and figure that, figure it out for myself first. I'd already begun doing a whole lot of reading when I first got to reconcile with my dad. And I remember when I decided that I was going to read the book for the first time, I asked my wife, do you know if there's a Bible in the house? She says, yeah, 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 there's one in the garage. So just go in there, grab those boxes and just grab one of those. Um, I think there's a Bible in there. I don't know what kind of translation it is. And I remember looking at it. It was a good news Bible, had no cover. And I said, oh, sweet. Grabbed it, sat on the breakfast table. And I remember sitting on that breakfast table and I said, All right, I'm going to begin understanding this God for myself. I'm going to read this book for myself. And I, I, had this, I had this all planned out in my head, right? I was like, I'm going to read Genesis and I'm not going to move to the next book. I'm not even going to move to the next chapter or even the next verse until I fully understood what I just read. Uh-oh. I began in Genesis. I struggled in Exodus. And died in Leviticus. If you've never read the Bible before, don't start in Genesis. I mean, the Bible's not even written in chronological order anyway. John's a good book to start with. But I was at that place where I just wanted to understand the book for myself. And so I started like reading it for myself and I started to pick up in certain places, um, geographical locations like Euphrates and Tigris. And I said, I've seen that before. We got a book and I said, oh, okay. So this book claims to have its roots in this part of the world, which is like Iraq today in Afghanistan. And I was like, okay, so here's the story of Noah. It lands in a, on a mountain called Ararat, all right, that's southern Turkey. And I'm like, all of a sudden, like connected to this book to the point where I didn't care about what was the latest thing in the world at that time. I didn't care about what was on TV or what was on the radio. I didn't care about nothing. I wanted to read this book and I got so excited about it because not only was I reading that book, I was reading commentaries and other history books because I wanted to find out whether there was any truth to it. But you know what I discovered before I discovered that God actually existed? I discovered what I liked. I discovered that I had some passions that I didn't know existed until I picked up the book. All of a sudden, I had me 
a little mini library. I'm like, dude, this is crazy. I grew up hating two things. I hated religion and I hated school. Fast forward years later, I'm studying religion. And I'm sitting there looking at these books and I remember telling my wife, and this is when my wife knew I was going crazy. I said, hey, I was trying to look for this volume, but to get a brand new set, it's like expensive. But I found somebody online that's willing to sell it for a cheaper price. She goes, what is it? I said, it's like all 11 volumes of uh, Will Durant's story of civilization. She was like, are you serious right now? I was like, yeah, that's it, serious. I couldn't put books down, and it's still the case for me even today. I was reading everything I could get my hands on. All of a sudden, I discovered I had a passion for history. I had a passion for philosophy. I had a passion for, for, for theology. And I started reading that thing. It was to the point where I'd go to work, and on my breaks, I'd come out, and, and, and I'd put the, the Bible on top of the car on my break, and I'd pull out a cigarette and just start smoking and reading that thing outside. And the boys would come out of the bar and say, what on earth are you doing? I said, I'm reading. They said, that's a holy book you're reading in front of. And you're like smoking, which is kind of funny, right? None of these guys go to church, but they knew the book was holy. And so I remember just like looking at it. And I, was like, I was like, yeah, man, honestly, man, you got to read these stories in Genesis. If you've never read Genesis, some of those stories are just so powerful they're so deep in meaning. I remember when I was like reading it, there are times where I'll just have, I'll have a laugh to myself. And then there are times where I just get so frustrated. I'll be like reading a story and it doesn't give like a good ending. I'm like closing that book. Like, How ridiculous is that book? But the following day, I'll go back and start reading it again. And then there are some things that just didn't make any sense. It was like almost contradictive. But then again, C.S. Lewis once said, when looking at these stories of the Old Testament, no one would ever read these stories in their right mind and walk away that even though half these things may not have happened, but no one would ever walk away saying that there's nothing true about these stories. It's like, it's like, it's like listening to a story from Shakespeare and thinking, okay, those stories are all made believe, but there's something true about those stories. There's something true about humanity in these stories. And I, and I no longer got caught up in trying to prove the facts of these stories. I was just like trying to understand, like the story came out of, came out of the human story of history. I came to this point in my life where I, looked at my wife and I said, you know what? There's not a single mainstream historian that's going to doubt the existence of a person by the name of Jesus. And I ended up taking my wife through some of the things that I was studying. And I remember it led to going into some things about my Adventist faith, that my, my father's faith actually. And I started reading up some things about his faith and I was reading all these things that I could get my hands on to try and understand what Adventism was, I'm condensing a huge story. I remember I said, that, I, I said this to my wife, I think I want to get baptized. She said, okay. What are you going to do? 
I said, I'm going to contact the pastor. I contacted uh, our local church pastor, and I told him that I wanted to get baptized. He didn't know, he didn't know who I was. But he sent an associate pastor to come out to our house to kind of get to know us and take us through some Bible studies before we get baptized. Okay. Guy comes over. My wife and I got ready to meet him and sit down and have a conversation with him. We were just both moved by the gospel that we wanted to get baptized. And this guy sits down, opens up the word of God. He says, let's begin in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes of Jesus. At the end of his Bible studies, which was like 45 to 50 minutes, the Beatitudes of Jesus, we're having like a cup of tea on the, on, on the table. And I remember just before he, he left, I said to him, can I ask you a question? He says, yeah. In Daniel 8, 14, there is a preterist interpretation of that scripture where most biblical scholars believe that was Antiochus Epiphanes. But then there's the historicist approach that I believe the Adventists take, and they believe this to be Rome. Now, I'm struggling because the four winds and the four horns is coming out of the same creature, is it not? He looked at me, his jaw was on the ground. And he said, Rome, what else do you know? He goes back to his senior pastor and he says, trust me, ring him up, talk to him. I think we should baptize him tomorrow. <laughs> so he rings me up, right? And I go and see him. We had this one-on-one -on -one chat and he says, Rome, tell me, what do you know about the church? And, he's, and I said, well, yeah, I, I, know, I know about the 28 fundamental beliefs and I also could give you a Bible study on the 28 fundamental beliefs. And he was like, Rome, are you ready to get baptized tomorrow? Both my wife and I were baptized. And I can tell you right now, I was on fire. And I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you're just meeting God for the first time and you're on fire for God. You're, you're convicted to say, Jesus is the one true God. Jesus can do all things. Jesus can rescue you from all these things. And then you hit rock bottom. And then you ask the question, I mean, like the easiest person to fool is, is yourself, right? Like, did I just fool myself? All these questions swimming in my head. And here's the thing, right? That moment happened for me when I told my wife that I wanted to go to Avondale University and study a bachelor's degree in theology. And she looked at me and she realized I was kicked out of school at 15 years old. Three and a half years in prison after that. And she goes to me, Honey, I think there's a prerequisite to a degree. And I remember looking at her and I said, Babe, I just heard a sermon last week where the preacher said that God thrives in impossible situations. I'm going to walk in there and I'm just going to say I'm going to study theology and God is going to open the way like he parted the Red Sea. And she says, and what if, what if they say no? Then I said, then God has got to stop bothering me about this thing. You know, one of, the, one of the first signs that God is calling you to something is first and foremost, recognize your own voice. Recognize your own desires. Know yourself, right? And here's me thinking I know myself, and then all of a sudden, you know, what I know of myself is I don't like education, and I don't like religion, and then all of a sudden there's a desire to study and to 
this, this gravitation towards religion, and I realized that ain't me. That's something else moving. One of the first indications that God is calling you to something is when you realize it's not you. I had a friend that I was doing Bible studies for. He's like 6'9", covered in tattoos. And I remember when I was leading him to Jesus and I'll try and invite him to church. He says, Rome, I, I just got a problem with turning up to church. I'm just, man, I, I just feel like I'm going to burst into a ball of flames if I walk into church. And I kept trying to encourage him. We went to a wedding where there was this wedding reception and they're waiting for the bridal party. And so the MC gets up and the MC says, is anyone here? Like they're going to be like 10 minutes. So has anyone here got a special item or someone here want to sing a song or something? And this guy who's sitting right next to me, I grew up with him. I know exactly what his strengths and weaknesses are, like he knows mine. And as soon as the MC says, is anyone here willing to do a special item or something? He kind of like rubs his knees, and then next thing you know, he stands up in front of at least, you know, just under 100 people. He stands up tall, and I remember looking at him, and the look on my face was like, dude, what the heck are you doing? And he was like looking at me, and he was, the look on his face was like, I'm going to do something here. And he walks up to the front, and nobody knows him. He's my guest. He walks up to the front. There's a lady on the keys, and he whispers to the lady. She says, okay. And he grabs the mic, and I said, this is an unbelievable sight. Like I've known this guy his whole life, and never have I seen him standing there with this mic in his hand and this beautiful introduction to what sounds like amazing grace on the keys. And before you know it, this tanner came out of him. And when he started singing amazing grace, I was like lost. The people were there amazed at him. But they always thought like, oh, he must have been a singer. You know, they're not, they're not too surprised. They're like, he must have been a singer. I know him. And I'm like, I've never known him to be a singer. He walks down at the end of that performance. Everyone's like clapping their hands. And he comes down and he sits right next to me. And he goes, Rome, I'm a singer. The guy has been wrestling with singing tenor his whole life, never wanting to do it because the first time he did it, kids laughed at him. And the only place he would sing is in the quiet places where nobody's ever around. And for the first time, the urge to stand up and take hold of the gift that God has given him, he stands up and he starts singing. I'm like, wow, here's my moment. Babe, I'm going into Avondale University and I am going to put all of the stuff that's in my head right now and get a degree out of it. She's like, okay, let's do it. And I remember praying with her by the bedside and I said to her, because she kind of shook me up when she said, you know, they're going to ask for you to do something else. You know, like there's a prerequisite to a, to a degree. And I said, okay, all right, let's pray. My prayer is going to be like Gideon's prayer. I'm going to say, God, if they tell me that I have to go away and study foundational studies or do general studies or some kind of other study before I do a bachelor's, I'm going to take that as a sign that this is not meant for me. And don't bother, with, don't bother me with it again. And I remember I said that prayer. I opened my eyes. My, my wife, her eyes weren't even shut. She looked at me. She goes, you can't give God an ultimatum like that. I said, I just did. 
we went to Avondale and I was confident, man. I was so confident. I was like singing songs in my head. I felt like Jehoshaphat, the guy who would sing songs before a battle because for him, the battle has already been won. And so I'm like walking into, walking into Avondale University, into the administration building, and I walk in there and I said, I'm here to study a bachelor in theology. And they said, well, <laughs> you've only got like two days. So you grab this and go fill it out right now and I need to take it right now. Now, I filled out application forms before. They gave me an application booklet. When they gave me that booklet, man, I started sweating. And here's the thing, right? They wouldn't let me go. I wanted, I, I wanted to do one of those ones. Like, uh, hey, let me just go home and fill it out. No, no, we, we're short of time. We need you to go into the, one of those rooms and just fill it out right now. So I told my wife, my son, I said, hey, let's just go into this room and fill it out. And so we went in there. I was looking around. I knew I wasn't going to be able to fill out a single thing in that form except for my contact details. That's, that's it. Name, address, email address, and phone number. And then it says qualification, zero. Education, zero. Work experience. You don't even want to know what I did for work back then. And so I was like, you know what? Let's just, let's just hang out in here for about 30, 40 minutes, pretending that we're filling this form out. When the time is right, I'll just walk out. I'll just drop it on a desk and keep walking. Didn't play out like that in my head. I finished you know, just filling out just the contact details. And I remember praying that prayer in my heart. I said, God, are you the one? If you're the one, make this happen. God, God. I was just saying that repeatedly, you know, in my head. And I grabbed this booklet. I walk out, walk towards the, the desk where the lady was behind it. And I just dropped it and kept walking. She says, wait, I've got to look into this. So when she starts looking into it, I mean, have you ever had a moment where you just wanted the ground to open up and swallow you? Yeah, for me, that was my moment. But as I got ready to like reject everything, she's like looking at it. It's blank. She goes, this whole thing is not even filled out. I took it. I tore it in half. And I said, forget I even came in here. I put the thing in the, in the bin and I, I left. And I remember saying, you know what, God? Don't bother me with this no more. But here's the thing. A week later, that lady behind the counter, who's actually a pastor's wife now, takes that torn application, runs it up to the president of Avondale at the time, and he takes it, she talks to him, he gives me a call, and he says, you know, like, come on in and we can, we can have a chat. When he calls me and tells me to come in to have a chat, this time, I didn't tell my wife about it. I went in there, sat down with him and what would become two of my professors sat in there, they asked me two questions. Why theology? And what brought you here? When I started sharing, you won't believe it. I had no idea where the words were coming from. But as I was speaking, the president looks at me and says, this is not usually what we would do. We would usually consult with our peers before we make any decision. But I'm sure they'll agree with me. When we say welcome to Avondale University, look forward to seeing you in our class starting next week. I look back to that story in Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to finish right here. And if you look at Matthew chapter 11, I said we're going to land it right in Matthew chapter 11. I said we're going to land it right there. So look back with me in Matthew chapter 11. 
Look at the question again at verse 3. And he said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Right? Here's the easy question. Are you the coming one? Yes. Do you wait for another? No. But that's not the answer that Jesus gave. One of the things I love about Jesus is that when we have a question to ask him, the answer sometimes doesn't make sense to anybody else, but it makes sense to you because he's personal. He's speaking to you directly. He speaks to you based on what is in your heart. And John the Baptist is a man that's possessed with kingdom business. His whole life has been about seeking the will of the Father, fulfilling the word of the Father. You really care about anything else in life, you know? For him, he believed in a teleological God, a God that creates and he knows exactly why he's creating you. And here's what John knew. He knew that he was going to prepare the way for the coming of the one who would open the eyes of the blind, enable the deaf to hear, and the lame. These were all signs of the Messiah, and John knew that. So John's question was a deep and meaningful question to him. See, for John, he wasn't afraid that he was going to die. That's how I always interpreted that. He wasn't losing faith. That's how I always interpret that too. You see, John only cared about the fulfillment of his purpose and his life. And Jesus knew that. So Jesus responded in verse 4. And Jesus says, go tell John. You see, go tell him. You see, John's been waiting for the eyes of the blind to be opened. Never got to witness it. And Jesus says, go tell John. The eyes of the blind are open. The ears of the deaf are unstopped and the lame are walking. In other words, go tell John that his life purpose, that the meaning of his existence has met its fulfillment. For John now, I don't care what happens to me from here on now. Whether I live to a hundred, whether I live to be wealthy, whether I live to live in a mansion one day, and live, all these things are irrelevant to John the Baptist because his life purpose has been fulfilled. You see, if you take something away from today, take this away. You see, for John, he wasn't just interested in living a full life. He wanted to live a fulfilled life. What is it, God, that you're asking of me? Victor Frankl said it better when he said, when a person finds their purpose, when a person finds the meaning of life, everything else, everything else is like a bonus. Happiness is a bonus. You see, because you no longer attach your life to happiness because happiness comes and goes. And you'll always be happy and down and, and, and your life will be up and down. Your life will be like a plastic bag blowing in the wind unless something grounds it, something much more than what this world has to offer. 
And when a person finds that, when a person lands that meaning, nothing else could ever move them. They could have good days, they'll have bad days, but they're grounded when they hit rock bottom. I've come to embrace rock bottom because I discovered the rock at the bottom. And for me, whether I climb out of there or stay there, doesn't really matter for me. Whether I stay there or leave that place, so long as he is with me, I'd rather suffer with him than to live a pleasurable life without him. God, is my purpose here or is my purpose outside there? Is my purpose to live to 100? Is it my purpose to have all these? God, help me find my purpose and align me with your will that one day you would be like John. You know what? I can imagine John saying the same things that Jesus said. Both men died in their 30s. And I can just see John saying the same words as Jesus. It is finished. Desire of Ages says that the last day church needs to look at John the Baptist because the last day church is to carry the work of John the Baptist, which is to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. John prepared the coming of the Lord the first time. The church is going to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord the second time. What is your purpose? And I pray that God will help you discover that while you're here in this camp. Shut off everything else that's in this world and just be in alignment with the Spirit of God that you walk out of this place discovering why I exist. And I'm going to unpack a lot of this in tomorrow's studies and throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen. go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we pause in your presence, Father, that we're aware that you know us better than we know ourselves. And if we're not aware of that, Father, through your Holy Spirit, bring us to a place of surrender here in this place. I pray, Father, that you can speak to us. Speak to us now, Lord. Speak to us throughout this week, Lord. Open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to your will for our life. I know, Lord, that there's many of us that say, and I, we, we need a Daniel of today and we need a Joseph of today. We need a Paul of today. But Father, in your infinite wisdom, if you knew that they would be good for today, you would have held off from bringing them into existence until now. But you brought them into existence in the right time. And Father, we are here today because you have given us life. And we are here because you have purposed us to be here. So I just pray, Father, that 
you'll help us. Open our eyes and our hearts, our minds to your will. Speak to us in a special way, Lord. Help us to not just seek to live a full life. Help us to live a fulfilled life. A fulfilled life in Jesus Christ. All these things, Father, we pray through no other name but Jesus Christ by whom we are saved. Let everyone say, Amen and Amen and Amen. God bless you all.